This morning's scripture reading will be from Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Again, that's Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And it reads, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Good morning. It's great to see everybody today, to be together to worship. Special welcome to our guests who are visiting with us from the community and also several families have uh, family members here, the Rays, the Marleys, the uh, Coles, and I just looked up here and saw that uh, Jay Lynn has family here, daughter-in-law. And it's great, great to see you all, others that are with us today. And those of you who have come from uh, the neighborhood of the community, we're so thankful that you're here. And welcome you to our studies. We continue uh, in studying through the book of Exodus and working on the Ten Commandments. Um, this week, I was looking through some old photographs, and it struck me how... Uh, how powerful a photograph can be, how an image can transport you to another time and another place and just bring all those memories back. This isn't the best quality of photograph, but it was taken uh, in 1968 on the front porch of my Uncle George and Aunt Emily's farmhouse in uh, Hartford City, uh, just outside of Hartford City, Indiana. It's a Sunday afternoon. That's me on the right. Is that right? Yes, that's me on the right. I love that plaid shirt. And uh, playing Euchre, which is a great card game from that part of the world, Euchre. Uh, my cousin and Rusty and I are playing as partners. That's my grandpa with his back to you and my cousin Frank looking forward. Uh, this was before our tournament started, and I remember this Sunday afternoon so very well because... Uh, this is a big family reunion day, and all the men were in the Euchre tournament. There were a lot of us there, uh, and I include myself and my cousin Rusty, who are the youngest two there. We teamed up. We decided the two youngest guys would team up. We teamed up, and we got to the finals against our grandfathers. We share a grandfather, but Rusty's other grandfather was there, and we were playing the two oldest guys were playing the two youngest guys, and we knew we couldn't possibly win because our grandpas always won. Everyone knew they cheated, but nobody really knew how. They never got caught. I shouldn't call my grandpa a cheat. I don't have any real evidence, but let me just say he, they always won. And, and so Rusty and I were playing them down to the wire, and on this day, Rusty and I won. Uh, there was no small cry of rejoicing uh, at that point in time. We couldn't believe it. And that was like our introduction to being grown men in the Shields, Burgess, Deerfield, all the, all the clan, all the last names back there. That was a memorable day. It's funny. I can just look at that. I can see Grandma and Grandpa. I can, see everybody, I can tell you everybody who's there that day. Images have a lot of power to them if they're the right image. In our national conscience, there are images. Some images that perhaps were, were made or taken or represented time before we were born. And yet even so, they're probably images that have some kind of an impact on us. I remember this particular image. I know that picture was taken on November 25th, 1963. I know because President Kennedy was buried on my birthday. And uh, it was a Monday. And that picture of John Kennedy Jr. saluting the casket of his father. It's one of those images. Uh, I just saw a few, a few weeks ago the fellow in this picture just passed away. Uh, a great picture in Times Square at the end of World War II. 
Uh, I don't believe they knew each other, but uh, that's a, one of those images. And this is one that always resonated with me. I don't know if you remember it or not, but it's a POW coming home from Vietnam. And every time I would see this photo, I would just think of that daughter of his and those kids and that wife coming to see him after what he had been through. And Wow. What can I say? How about that for an image? Yeah. Tiananmen Square brings back a variety of memories, doesn't it? And from pop culture, if you don't know Singing in the Rain, you need to, you need to get it and watch Gene Kelly if you want a happy time. I mean, just the exuberance of that. And then something more somber, the sacrifice on that day, on that week. Images, they're powerful. And I think God, who bars them from use... Part of that reason may be because of the power that an image can have. Our text today, read to us a moment ago from Tim, deals with the second commandment and the prohibition of images. Let me read you again the opening of the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." God bars the use of images not only for idols and false gods, but also for himself, as we'll see in just a moment. And you have to think back to the time in which this law was given. Think of the world in which Israel lived. Think of where they had just come out. Egypt. Egypt has all kinds of gods. I mean, they had a bunch of gods. And guess what? Every one of their gods had an image. They could draw them. They could make a sculpture of them. They had statues. They all had faces. They all had forms, every one of them. Israel was going to go into the land of Canaan. Guess what? Dagon and Baal and eventually Molech. All of these gods that they're going to run into among the nations, they're all imaged. They're all carved. They're all there. Every one of them. That's the world in which Israel is living. Image-making and worshiping through images was inherent in all ancient Near Eastern religions of the time. And it was because an image became a a manifestation of the essence of your God. So there was a sense that if you had an image, that you had a a representative and therefore an actual presence of your God there in some kind of form. And that presence not only reflected something about the nature of your God, but became the conduit between you and your God. Both things that you're giving to him and things that he's giving back to you. He was a living presence. And so what would happen is that there would be sacrifice, there would be ritual, there would be certain worship that would take place through this carved image, through this conduit 
to the world of the God. And a worshiper could manipulate his God, could gain something from his God by following the prescribed steps and feeding the God through ritual or through sacrifice. And the, and the idol made that even more possible. They're portable. You can carry them anywhere you want to go. You can take your God with you. You can set up a shrine anywhere that you want. And of course, when you're worshiping through an image, in the ancient Near East, if you worship through an image... What was important is that you got the ritual right and you made the right kinds of offerings and the right kinds of sacrifices. The worshiping of images did not lead to a holy lifestyle. It wasn't about holiness. It wasn't about being good. It was just about doing what was necessary to make this connection with your God and then what most people in the ancient world wanted and maybe what most people in the modern world want is then to get something from your God, to get something from Him. And so God says there will be no images and no likenesses. Images of what? Images of who? Well, certainly no images of the gods of Egypt or of Canaan, but that's pretty much covered, isn't it, in commandment number one? Not to have any other gods before me. They're not to have any of those gods. They're not to worship any of them through any means whatsoever. I think when you come to this second commandment about not having graven or carved images, God particularly is concerned with images of Him. And the reason I say that, though it's not really expressed much in Exodus, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 40 years after Exodus 20, Moses is addressing the children of Israel, the younger generation that grew up in the wilderness during that 40-year time span. And they're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. And he's giving them the Ten Commandments and teaching them the law. And just prior to giving them the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, notice what he says to this new generation in Deuteronomy 4. And he's reminding them about what happened 40 years early at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai when they received the law. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven. Wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom, then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. The emphasis in Deuteronomy 4, as you're going to see, is that there was no form. God does not appear in a form. He goes on to say, Therefore, Watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, and then the the list goes on of the likeness of whatever. But do you notice the connection here? The connection isn't to making gods or idols out there in the world. The connection is, look, when Yahweh appeared to you on the mountain, you did not see Him. He is immaterial. He is spirit. Because of that, because God does not show Himself in a form, you may never make an image of Him. You may never carve anything and say, this is the essence of Yahweh. This represents our God. Israel is never to do that. They are never to take those steps. How can you image the transcendent creator of the universe in an object that he has created? We sing a song about everything in creation, praising God and glorifying God. All things praise thee, Lord, may we. How, how can you 
carve out a little bird and say, yeah, there's Yahweh. There's the God of the universe. Yeah, perfect representation, right? And, and God is saying, there's nothing, that, there's nothing that images me. You can't make an image of me. There's no material. There's no substance. There's no design. There's no shape. There is no appearance that you can say, oh, here is the essence of the Lord God of Israel. No, God says. You're not to ever do that. And you see that in this way, Israel is going to be different from every other nation on the face of the earth. Because every nation images their God. Every nation has carved images. Everyone has statues. Everyone has images of their gods. Israel alone will not. And what will that witness be to the world? Yahweh is not like your God. Yahweh cannot be imaged in stone. You can't carve something and say, yeah, that's what Yahweh is like. No. Because Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a mighty God who stands outside of creation, who is transcendent over it. It is not only inappropriate, it is the height of idolatry to carve or make an image and say, this is who our God is. And so the prohibition comes because God does not reveal himself in a material form. And yet, what happens? Just after making the covenant, Moses is up on the mountain for that 40 days. They just can't wait. And what happens? Well, we know what happens. The golden calf happens. In, while Moses is still up on the mountain receiving the law, in Exodus chapter 32, at verse 4, Aaron has gotten all the gold from everybody there in the camp. He's like, we don't know what's going on with Moses, right? So they get all the gold. It says he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, I will admit that the word God is plural here, opening up a polytheistic view of adding perhaps some gods but notice the way they describe this God. This is the God who brought us up out of Egypt. Who is the God who brought them out of Egypt? There is no doubt the name of the God who brought them out of Egypt. The Ten Commandments begin in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And to make it very clear that this is an image of God, this is an image of Yahweh, going on in the next two verses... When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, the name of God, Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Who are they offering them to? They're offering them to Yahweh, the God of Israel. They're offering them to the God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They're offering them before a golden calf. Making an image of Yahweh that they might worship Him through. And they do it for the same reasons that the pagans do. Because they want a God that they can see and touch and feel and move around and feel comfortable with. Their God, if you haven't already noticed, this Yahweh God... I mean, he is terrifying. They don't even want to hear his voice anymore. 
Moses, you go deal with him. We'll just stay down here. You let us know what he says. This is a God who just takes them places that are completely beyond their control. They want to, they want to cut him down to size a little bit. They want to be able where they can yeah, kind of be right in his presence. They don't want some God who can't be managed, some God who is just so ma- powerful and mighty that he's just frightening to even be close to. And, and they say in the text, we want our God to go before us. We want to be able to carry our God where we want to go. I mean, can you imagine if the only time you could move is as if the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud moved, and that's how they travel when God tells them to move. And He takes them to these places they don't really want to go. He has not really taken them to the best places, has they, along this route. And they, we, want, we want a God that we can carry on our own. We want to carry Him where we want to go. We want a God who's portable, who can travel with us. And, you know, we'll feed Him. We'll offer up the food. We'll get, you know, well, let's kill the animals right now. Let's do peace offerings. We'll feed him. And then through this God, now we have some sort of access. Because we've gone through the ritual. We fed him. We fed the calf. We had the, we have, we, you know, we fed ourselves. And they rise up to play. There's no reason for holy living if you worship a calf. Let me just say, if your God is a calf, you don't have to worry about how you live because I'm pretty sure calves don't. It says they rose up to play. One version says revelry. You look at the heart of that word and this describes some of the most despicable behavior in all of Scripture, what they were doing that day around the statue of Yahweh who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Well, the problem is this tendency never goes away. (laughs) The tendency to make some kind of an image of God, even the true God, that is a little bit more to your own liking, or I should say my own personal liking, is a tendency that runs through the human race. It's something that we have to guard against. little girl was coloring in Sunday school and teacher said what are you coloring she said I'm coloring a picture of God and the teacher said well you can't do that because nobody knows what God looks like and she said well they will when I'm done <laughs> well I was probably pretty innocent for a four year old but that's kind of the way we kind of well I'll tell let me, let, me, let me give you my own kind of image of God there is always a tendency to draw God to make an image of God Of course, we're not talking about literal images, but mental images that make God more manageable for us, that make things easier for us, that justify things that we might like. Let's share a few thoughts just quickly here with some different images of God that are out there today. We begin with the most grotesque of all, and that is the God who preaches the prosperity gospel. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to have money. God wants you to have everything you ever wanted. God wants every desire of yours to be filled. God does not want you to be poor. God is against that. God wants to pour out blessing into your life. That's who God is. So if I'm rich, I feel, I feel okay about it. And if I'm not, I feel validated to be greedy, to become rich. It's not an accident or a coincidence that the largest church in the United States preaches this gospel.
it's a great image of God to worship because of what it justifies in your own heart and life. There's no talk of the cross. There's no talk of suffering. There's no talk about the poor. There's no talk about submission. Because after all, God just wants you to be wealthy. Maybe a scaled-down version for someone like me who doesn't expect quite so much is like God is Santa Claus. What, do you, what, what can I get for you this year, Richard? What can I get for you today? Or how about God as, as the genie in the lamp, you know? That's even better because the lamp you can leave on the shelf. You can put him up on the shelf and just leave him there. Give him a nice place. And then if you ever have a problem... Well, then you go get the lamp down, right? And you, you have something that you say or you rub it or whatever. Or somehow you, you get him to appear and then God does what you want him to do. That's how sometimes we, we think of God. God just is kind of in the background until I need him. And then when I need him, I can call on him and, and he'll be there to do what I... As if God has no will. As if God has no purpose in the world or in my life. The God who wants me to be happy. Don't you know God just wants you to be happy? <laughs> God just wants you to be happy, whatever that takes, whatever shape that takes. God wants you to be happy. And, and, and it would just almost be hilarious to say that if the truth weren't that there are people who justify some of the most sinful, immoral behaviors in their life that they know the Bible can, would convict them of. But they can completely ignore it because God wants them to be happy. Therefore, I can, I, can, I can do what I want to do over here, even though God has said. And sometimes we think that. Of course, God isn't so much concerned with our happiness. It's a little bit more concerned with our character, with our heart. And when, I'm, when I throw these things out here, it's not as if any of us are just like... You know, full-blown worshiping the God of happiness or the gospel of prosperity or the rubbing the genie or whatever, the lamp, that sort of thing. I'm just, I'm just asking you to take a few minutes as we run through these to try to identify maybe which caricature might be just a little bit appealing to you or maybe one that you've just drawn perhaps here or there in your life. Oh, here's a favorite. Grandpa, the old man in the sky... This is a God who is so understanding uh, that there's no end to his indulgence. He just, that's okay. Oh, you know, all that talk about judgment and hell, you know, I've just kind of caught me on a bad day. Just, I'm just sitting here rocking in my chair. Everybody's fine. No worries. It's like, just come sit in my lap. And I'm not saying that drawing near to God and having intimacy with Him is a bad thing to want, but it's this perverted image of God as if He's just an old man sitting in a chair somewhere who indulges us because after all, you know. Here's my nemesis right here. If it's time for confession, here's mine. God in a box. My God. It's amazing to me how God thinks like I do. Do you know that God thinks just like I do? That He sees Scripture exactly like I do? That He has the same preferences about basically everything in the world and in the church that I do? We just see eye to eye? You know, that sometimes that's the way we can look at God. That God is just someone who validates me. And, I, he, you know, he, better, he doesn't do surprises. He doesn't, he doesn't challenge you or rebuke you or, Richard, get in your face and, and rebuke me and, and, and call me, you know, 
through his through his love and through his judgment at times. No, because God is just the God that he just he's just like me. He thinks just like I do. So we just get along. It just I never have any problems with him because we're just so in sync with each other. In fact, I'm pretty sure if God could wave a magic wand, what he would really like to turn this world into is the Church of Christ in the 1960s. I think that's what he would like. Because I'd kind of like that. I'd kind of like to go back in time. That's kind of the, my little perfect world in some ways. That's not who God is. God isn't someone who is bound by our expectations or what we think he should or shouldn't do. That's not the God that Israel had. And that's, I think, part of the problem of, of the things that they didn't really particularly care about God. It's because he was so unpredictable. He turns things upside down on their heads. You never know what he's going to do next. That's the God of the Bible. Not some God who's under my control, who's, who has to suffer my constraints. And how about God is Monty Hall or Wayne Brady? Let's make a deal. I didn't even know this show was still on the air, apparently. I don't know. Does anybody watch Let's Make a Deal? Okay, sorry. I just thought I'd check. <laughs> apparently, it's still on. I remembered Monty Hall, and I guess Wayne Brady is the host. Everything's negotiable with God. Just make a deal. Cut a deal with God. Whatever it takes. You do this for me. I'll do that for you. We'll work something out. I'm sure we can make something work out here. And one that perhaps is a real difficulty for a lot of Christians. That's the God who stays put. The God who stays in the church building. We come here on Sunday mornings and we meet the Lord. And then, of course, we've got to go out there in the real world and make our way and live. But he'll just stay here. Not terribly concerned with what goes out on there in the world or what I'm doing in the world. And next week, fall works out. I'll come back and he'll be here waiting for me. We'll have another nice visit. As if God is just contained within a little place and God isn't relevant in the world that I live in or God isn't with me wherever I go and in every thought and in every word and in every action. And in case none of those will work for you, fortunately we live in the technological age of the virtual God. Just drag, click, drop, whatever. I mean, you can shape him, you can, you can tailor make a God for you that's user-friendly that just fits into what you are looking for in your world. The French philosopher Voltaire said centuries ago, if God created us in his own image, we have more than reciprocated. And that's the truth. We have. I'd really like you to consider, as I do, what tendency might you have to shape God just a little bit differently than the Bible does for your own purposes. We need to be thinking about how do I make an image of God? What do I do with Him that He wants me to see? Because the reason we do it is the same reason Israel did it. And it's easier to reshape God than allow God to reshape you. It's easier to bring God into someone who's manageable for you, someone who can be cut down to size, that can serve your purposes, and you can worship Him and, and love Him and whatever, but you can kind of do so a little bit more, perhaps on your terms, than on His. The question of that, then, is where does that leave us? If that's the, if that's the direction we go with God, where does that lead us? And first of all, it leads us to a place where my worship is 
totally unacceptable to God and idolatrous. Not because I'm worshipping a false god, but because I'm worshipping a perverted image of the true God. The old man in the sky is not Yahweh. The God who wants me to be rich is not Yahweh. If I'm worshipping that God, even in the right forms, if I'm... If I'm meeting in His name and if I'm singing to Him and meeting around His table, but if my image of God is some perverted, distorted caricature of my own making, my worship is as meaningless and idolatrous as Israel's dancing around the calf. They worshipped by the book. They did their sacrifices just right. The problem was they were worshipping around an idol that they had made to represent their God. And when we worship... An image of God that is not the biblical image we are worshiping in vain. Not only is our worship in vain, but our life is going to suffer. Our character, our our morality, our identity as a disciple of Christ will be marred. Because I'll tell you, you can't rise above the image of the God that you worship. It's said over and over again in different words in the Old Testament by the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 5, Jeremiah said of the people of his day, they, they followed after worthless idols and they became worthless themselves. You become like the thing you worship. The, the God that you behold and worship, that's the God who then sets the course for how you're going to live. Why did Israel want a bull and eventually centuries later build bulls at Dan and Bethel? Why do you want a God who is a bull? Because you want a God who is powerful. Because you want a God who's going to make your land fertile. Because that's, that's what you're wanting in your life. They're not necessarily wanting a God that's holy. That will call them to holiness. That will call them to justice. They want an image of God that will call them to something else. And when we shape God into that more suitable image for ourselves, we end up finding ourselves with behavior that falls falls short of His standard. In Romans chapter 1, when Paul talks about the downward plunging of the society through pagans, who turned against God, one line out of that first chapter stands out to me today, where where it says in in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and reptiles. The downward spiral into sin is to image God in an inappropriate way. And to call him God. When you, dist- when you worship that distorted God, you become a distorted person. And it's such an image of God erodes any sense of reverence or worship or awe. If God's in a box, if God's my genie on the shelf under my control, I'm not afraid of him. I'm not afraid of a God who sits in a rocking chair. I have no awe about him because he's not transcendent. He's, he's, he's been shut down. He's, he's, his wings essentially have been clipped. You don't take this God very seriously. And because of that, there's no wonder, there's no transcendence, there's no spiritual power in your life. Because the things that the, real, the true, real God does for us, when we come to Him and devote our lives to Him and worship Him, we don't get those things. We don't receive those things from these images of God that aren't truly Him. And, and so the whole religious enterprise becomes very, uh, just boring and uh, irrelevant. Because we're not really connecting with the true living God. And God makes it very clear in this text that this will also lead to punishment. 
And he makes that clear to Israel and he will punish them after this building of this calf. This isn't some petty jealousy of a guy, well, you did that to me, let me, let me get back to you. God is jealous for his people, even more so than a husband would be jealous for the fidelity of his wife. More than that is God is creator, is sovereign of the universe. God is jealous of his own nature and that his people understand who he is and relate to him that way. And God wants is calling Israel into this covenant relationship. Why? To bless them, to live among them, to work through them, to invite them to share in his purpose. He wants to bless them. He cannot bless them around a golden calf. He can't do for them what he wants to do. He will punish them for this. In fact, many people on that day were put to death. They were destroyed when they would not repent of this idolatry. And God said, this will just go on. The way this works, God says, you know, not only do you get this judgment on yourselves, but now... This generational thing is going to come down for three or four generations that your children are going to have this. Why is that? God isn't just arbitrarily punishing people that come after idol worshipers. He's saying, if you worship a false image of me, guess who your children are going to worship? If mom and dad worship the God who stays put in the church building and they raise up their family... Worshiping a God who stays put in the church building. And, and the kids grow up seeing that kind of a relationship with God throughout all of their life. What kind of God are the kids going to believe in? They're going to believe in that God. Or if it's the gospel of prosperity God or whatever God. This is something that gets passed on generationally. And God says, look, I want to bless you. I'm calling you into covenant with me and you're putting me in a position where all I'm going to be able to do is judge and punish you because of your idolatry. And he, he turns right back around and says, what I want to do is I want to pour out my loving kindness and blessing on you for a thousand generations. I want to bless you people. Not in the sense of the prosperity, but in the sense of the intimacy with God and being the people of God. And God says, your idolatry is cutting you off from, from that blessing that I long to give to you. It's just really an eye-opener. I was thinking about this as a, oh, I'm a parent and a grandparent. Just thinking back over the years, thinking about kids growing up in the church. And I think sometimes some of our kids grew up in families where it wasn't really Yahweh who was being worshipped. It was some smaller version and if you're worshiping, if you're raised up to worship some lesser version of God, it wears pretty thin. It's just a whole lot of activity and commitment and ritual to keep something up when there's no real relationship or no real spiritual power involved. I think a lot of our young people just got tired of it. What's, why worship that? It's just a reminder of how these things can get passed down as God mentions it. So, now that I've got everybody pretty much totally depressed today, where does this thing turn around? Well, this is the wonderful part to me of the lesson. I wish I could have done 25 minutes on this, but... Worship Yahweh. Worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love Him with all of your heart. 
Go to the Scriptures. See who He is. Look at His, his self-revelation and creation. Look at His wonder and His power and His majesty. Read His Word. Reflect on it. Meditate on it day and night. Look who this God is. Look at His holiness, His wrath, His mercy, His, his abounding love for us, his, his sense of justice and righteousness, His concern for the downtrodden and poor, the way that He calls people who are broken to come to Him and find healing. Look at the whole picture of God in this album. Here's where all of the images are found. The true image of God. And worship Him. He is worthy of worship. Lose yourself in worshiping Him. That's the, that's the answer to any form of idolatry. That's fulfilling. To know and to... It's, it's, a, it's a much more demanding process. The discovery of the heart and the mind and the will of God, it goes on forever in our lives. It's complex. He, he is the God of the universe. He transcends everything. And yet He calls us near through Christ and calls us to know Him. What an amazing adventure in life. There's, there's the answer. Are you kidding? Worship a calf? Worship Santa Claus? Worship an old man? And, no, no, no. Give me the God of Israel with smoke and fire and lightning and the earth trembling. A God who makes such visible manifestations to say, you have no idea about my glory and power. This is just, this is just an echo of it. That's the true living God, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who sent Him to die for us and redeem us. This is a God to worship. So focus on the true image of God in His Word. Boy, that excites me. That's the God I want to worship. And I'll tell you what. He will not give you everything you want. His number one concern is not that you're happy. His number one concern is about who owns your heart and what kind of character are you developing with His help. He's not someone we're ever going to manipulate. He should never be someone we would even want to manipulate because we know His Word, His will is perfect. Our will is so flawed. To be able to trust your heart and your life to a God whose will never fails, who's abounding in mercy. That's the God to worship. And He won't live in your box but He will show compassion to a thousand generations. And He will give you a purpose beyond any purpose anyone on earth can know other than those who long to know the Lord. And that is to become like Him because our God has created us in His image and in His likeness. He wants us to be molded and shaped and formed to become like Him. That's why He created us. Notice the words. These are the very words in the commandment. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven. We have dominion over those things. We don't take those images and then say it's Yahweh. God created us to be like Him. God created us to share in His nature. 
Yahweh was never to be imaged in stone or in something carved because there's a sense in which Yahweh imaged himself in living spiritual beings created to live in fellowship with him. Now, there's only one human being who ever walked this earth who reflected that image perfectly, and we know his name is Jesus, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. But God calls us to long for that goal in our life. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, about God's eternal purpose toward us, for those whom God foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's purpose, His eternal purpose for you on this earth today, is for you and I to become more and more and more like Jesus Christ every day. And we're sinners, and we've fallen short, and we will fall short. But that's the goal. That's the standard. What a God who loves us so, and who tells us that when we worship Him, when we devote ourselves to Him, Transformation takes place. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's the purpose of our life, to become more and more like God, to be transformed into His image by His work in our life, by our devotion to His Word, our worship and obedience to Him, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, until that day that we see Him face to face. And we are brought into full conformity with that image that now we see here in Scripture. This is the goal toward which God is working. And I would just say that those in this world who are having the most trouble are people who just don't know God and don't know really that what their life is all about. Wherever they are today, is to put their lives in the hands of God and to become more like Him and to be shaped by Him. And that's when life begins to come together for us. Everything else is idolatry. Everything else falls short. But God doesn't. He still says no graven image. Our hope and prayer for our lives is that we will submit our hearts and lives to Him and He will make His image in us. And I'm just saying that is a goal worth pursuing in your life. You and I are exchanging our lives for something. I'm telling you, that's something worth exchanging your life for. A life on this earth that is centered in the transcendent God of the universe and a desire to grow into His likeness by His power and His grace. May we be devoted to that and may we put away any other image than the image of God in Scripture. If you haven't begun that walk of life today, well, there's so much more to say about that, but let me just say in, in, in Galatians 3.27, Paul reminds us that for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. When you come to Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you trust in what he did for you on the cross and you're baptized with him, you are clothed with him. You are now dressed in his righteousness. That's how that process of transformation takes place, by God just imputing his righteousness to us. And then we begin that life of giving ourselves over to God. 
there's anyone among us today who needs to do anything in, in your life that the church can help with. As we sing this song, listen to the words. And may the, the words of the song be a prayer for each of us. Stamp thine own image deep on my heart. Let's stand and sing.